Welcome to Art of the Kickstart, your source for crowdfunding campaign success. I'm your host, Roy Morjan, president of Inventus Partners, the top full-service turnkey product development and crowdfunding marketing agency in the world. We have helped startups raise over $100 million for our clients since 2010. Each week, I'll interview a crowdfunding success story, an inspirational entrepreneur, or a business expert in order to help you take your startup to the next level with crowdfunding. Art of the Kickstart is honored to be sponsored by Backerkit and The Gadget Flow. Backerkit makes software that crowdfunding project creators use to survey backers, organize data, and manage orders for fulfillment by automating your operations and helping you print and ship faster. The Gadget Flow is a product discovery platform that helps you discover, save, and buy awesome products. It is the ultimate buyer's guide for luxury gadgets and creative gifts. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to another edition of Art of the Kickstart. Today I am joined by Derek Miller. Derek, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. So Derek, you are a prolific crowdfunder. You guys have done three campaigns now, raised over four and a half million dollars for your campaigns. These are some of the most well-known projects on Kickstarter, the Cyanide and Happiness Show, Joking Hazard. I mean, you guys have created some, some killer campaigns out there. So first, obviously, thank you for being on the show. Second, give our audience a little bit of background about uh, what, what you guys are doing and why you guys used crowdfunding to launch these campaigns. Yeah, so uh, that's a fun story. So Cyanide and Happiness, they started off as animators. Then they went to the comic where they started um, getting a little bit more traction, but they always loved animation. So in about 2010, they tried going to Hollywood with some animations and see if they get a show. All the deals were straight up garbage. Um, when basically, we could get fired from our own show and they'd keep all the IP forever. So Naturally, crowdfunding kind of came across as the right solution because we needed funds. We knew we had a dedicated fan base and we wanted to keep our control. I got involved in 2013 to help run the first campaign for the Sinai and Happiness show. And after that one raised 770000 uh, that allowed us to launch our weekly shorts on YouTube. And uh, we've since gotten two extra seasons of the show funded by an NBCU affiliate, CISO. And uh, since then, you know, we've been producing animation and knocking out more Kickstarters just because it seems uh, right for our brand. So right now, Derek, you guys are working on on a book, I'm told, and how to run kick-ass crowdfunding campaigns and put all of that knowledge into into a book for, you know, obviously six-figure and seven-figure crowdfunding campaigns. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, the purpose of the book is basically a book I wish I had in front of me for the first campaign. Because to be quite honest, I, I am very happy with the amount we raised, but uh, we were very fortunate to have not shot ourselves in the foot. We made a lot of decisions at last second, you know, increasing stretch goals or trying to promise more than we actually should have. We thankfully were able to recover from those issues, but it'd be scary for an independent artist to raise a lot of money like that and then not be able to produce your thing. So a lot of what we learned over from the first campaign and then the next two, kind of want to condense what myself and those of our friends who've worked on other campaigns have learned to try and prevent people from, you know, shooting themselves in the dang foot when there's there's no reason for it. Yeah, so I noticed on your first campaign, the uh, the biggest issue you guys had mentioned was over-merchandising the rewards, which obviously created a ton of headaches for you guys, <laughs> delays, 
and, you know, getting all the physical products produced and making all these t-shirts and all that fun stuff. So now for the second one, you guys did just the game itself and simplified it. Do you think that that helped the campaign overall, not just the headache on the back end? 100%. You know, it's very easy to get caught up in like extras and add-ons and be like, oh, well, I need such and such tiers to fill these numbers out. And sure, if that works within your product, great. But when it comes down to it, if your product itself cannot draw enough interest to fund, that's the core problem. You know, t-shirts, mugs, whatnot, that's not going to move the needle. It's only going to increase your complexity and take away money from working on your main project. And that's what happened with the CNH shows. We spent a lot of money on merch that could have been on, you know, fart jokes. Indeed, that would be a good use for it, right? <laughs> the best. So what do you think the biggest benefits crowdfunding offers to creators? Uh, I think the, the biggest benefits are kind of what I touched on. It's when it comes down to it as an artist, unfortunately, money doesn't rain from the sky. I've been trying as hard as I can. No luck. I'm still working on the formula. But at some point, you know, in your artist career, you have to determine who's going to be your customer. Is it going to be an agency or like a main company? If you're like a, like a writer, is it going to be a gallery? Is it going to be advertisers if you're doing stuff for free on our website? Or is it going to be your audience? And I think the value of crowdfunding is that it allows you to get funded directly by the people that love what you're doing for you and not as much what you can do for them. Uh, one of the things we're seeing right now, especially on YouTube, is because, especially for the jokes we do, I mean, we're South Park with stick figures, you are passively censored by advertisers because, I mean, Procter & Gamble does not want to put their stuff next to our content. That's fine. That's cool. But, you know, you need money to make art. And I think the real value of crowdfunding is it allows you to choose. I think you have to work harder for this customer. But I think the fan, the person that supports you, that's your best customer. That's the ideal customer. So, Derek, what would you say is the most important thing a creator should do before launching their crowdfunding project? Can you talk a little bit about some of the steps that you guys took in terms of pre-campaign work? I mean, yeah, you, you hit on it. The pre-campaign is where it's at because, uh, again, you're you're launching a very public product launch, right? And so you need to have all the kinks figured out beforehand. You know, what are people's reservations? What are the price points before the launch? So you're not changing it in the middle of the campaign and looking like you don't know what you do. So to, to boil it down to a specific point, you need to be talking and testing your product with customers bare minimum three months before you launch the campaign. Because when you're selling a product through Facebook ads or social media or email lists, you need to be able to know what people's pain points are, what language they use to describe it, and how to speak the language of people you're trying to make happy. Even simple things like Joking Hazard very clearly is kind of a Cards Against Humanity style game. And using that language makes it easier for people to go, oh, I get it. We initially, when we started testing it out, we didn't just think about that. You know, you're so close to a product, it's very easy to forget how to view it with fresh eyes. And that's the real value of just talking and talking and talking to your fans is seeing things with fresh eyes and seeing what your product actually is versus what you think it is. Got it. Let's talk a little bit about stats wise. I mean, before you guys launched the campaign, how many fans, followers, email addresses, all of those things had you built up thus far? Oh, man. So I know the numbers for Joking Hazard off the top of my head. We had about 7 or 8 million on Facebook, 3.5 million on YouTube, probably about 
5 million monthly uniques on our website. And those are where we drove the most traffic. One of the, the things I think that uh, we're doing as a brand now is realizing the importance of email lists and being able to directly talk to your fans as opposed to relying on Facebook or YouTube to own that relationship. Uh, on the most recent game, we just started building our email list, but every single email we collected earned us between 10 to 14 times the amount of revenue a social media like or a Twitter follow. So would you say that the, the email list itself gave you guys the greatest return on your investment? 100%. We did, out of all the promotion we did with like a secret campaign launch page that you could only find by signing up to this hidden website, uh, the effort we put in there was worth far more than we got from you know spinning our wheels trying to get press or um, many of the other common things. On a, on a one-for-one basis, the email list is, there's currently nothing that beats it. Uh, and that's one of the things I'm talking about in the book is that it's just the stronger your email list is, the stronger your campaign will be. Absolutely. So you made the uh, the potential backers do a little bit of work before they backed their, or at least got access to the campaign page? Yeah. So kind of, you know, pre-qualified the ones who are super interested and willing to spread the news about their friends. You know, even though we only had, I think about 2000 people originally sign up through the list or something, list signups continued growing even after the announcement. And it was all, we weren't promoting the page. The traffic was starting to just kind of grow organically because people we pre-qualified as super fans were already out there spreading our message for us. Interesting. So with such a massive following that you guys have on Facebook, and this is a question outside of crowdfunding, how are you guys seeing the recent changes with the Facebook algorithm towards the content you guys are creating? Have you changed your strategy at all? Uh, for our particular strategy on Facebook, it's more just kind of a mind space sort of thing. We are going to move more towards user interaction, drawing people in, you know, inviting them out to our banana bar crawl, uh, which is like one of our yearly fan appreciation things. But we kind of see it, it didn't really come as much as a surprise because for the last couple of years, every single January or whenever they do their annual shareholders meeting, Facebook is saying, you know, we're not going to give people free promotion. They're an amazing data and advertising platform. And while it was free publicity and free access to fans when the Facebook started as it's built up, I mean, again, they're a business and they're a toll booth, right? You're parking your fans on someone else's parking lot and they're going to continue increasing their rates because brands need it. So no, we, we've been planning for this and trying to build, especially with email lists, trying to build our ability to be less fragile outside of social media. Nice. You touched on publicity a little bit. Now going back to the crowdfunding campaign, do you have any tips that would help any other crowdfunding creators get coverage? So publicity actually for Cyanide Happiness has been one of the smallest return on investment we've had for our campaigns. Now, obviously that's not common with every single one of them, but the, the articles, the few articles we did that moved the needle were people who were generally already fans of us and were willing to go through the process of testing out prototypes. You know, we found creators on YouTube and whatnot who's like, oh, I love you guys. You know, how can I help you out? And instead of just saying, hey, you know, like, share, subscribe, you know, just kind of we made it them kind of a part of the process. We sent them prototypes and said, hey, just play it with your friends. Let me know what you think. Uh, and we started getting feedback like, all right, well, you know, it was, it was really good feedback. This card doesn't work or I'm not sure this rule book is kind of weird right here. How do you feel about this image? You know, and that kind of 
again, just talking to people, not only does that draw them into the campaign, but it also makes them feel invested in its success. And once someone's invested in your success, they're more likely to share it, right? So it kind of was more of a personal one-to-one relationship we had with them. And those are the ones that move the needle more than like press releases or just trying to mass cold email everyone. Yeah. I mean, we talk to a lot of crowd funders who have a limited budget. You know, what would you say is the best investment that if they didn't have a lot to spend in terms of just marketing their campaign that they should invest in? I'd say just like a simple MailChimp account so you can have an email list and basically own your fans and talk to them. Your fans are your the, the limited resource, right? They're the thing that all your paycheck comes from. If it's on someone else's platform, sure, it's free on Facebook. But if you're paying, I, don't, I forget what it is, but whatever, 10 bucks a month on you know MailChimp or something to own your fans, you'll be a lot safer. And that is the expense that I say I would not skimp on versus, you know, there's a lot of services out there that say, oh, well, mass press email, you know, 6,000 press outlets. Don't spend your money on that because you're just sending spam out. You know, talk to people on a one-to-one basis. Solid advice there, Derek. So where do you think most unsuccessful crowdfunders go wrong? The biggest thing is assuming that there is a hungry, writhing, waiting mass of people sitting on Kickstarter, hitting refresh for new products every second of every day. And they go, oh, as soon as my product launches, it's going to be good. I mean, it, it sounds silly when I put it that way. That's kind of the goal. But a lot of people assume, you know, Kickstarter is a huge site. Yes, it's going to carry my campaign. And big campaigns do get a lot of lift from it. We always have. Um, But it's only after it's been funded and there's already been early interest. If you don't have early interest and you are not talking to someone every single second of every day, no one else is going to talk about you, right? There's a lot of creators scared of, oh, what if I'm marketing too much? Or what if, you know, people hear my message twice? I mean, with as much as there is going on the internet, like, games and things that are awesome and stupid YouTube videos. You're lucky if someone hears your message twice. You know, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. Unfortunately, Kickstarter isn't the field of dreams where if you build it, they will come, right? Oh, not at all. So given that you guys have run multiple campaigns, you know, what has changed the most in your eyes with crowdfunding over the past few years? It's become a much more professional sort of thing. The quality of campaigns has consistently increased, whereas you could be able to get away with just some cool sketches and like, hey, I've got some sweet ideas Uh, in the early days of Kickstarter as more campaigns have not funded or not delivered. And there's been scams and, you know, campaigns saying, oh, you need to pay an additional $200 to get my product. Backers have gotten more jaded and campaigns have had to be more professional. You know, most campaigns are run with a team of two bare minimum if not, you know, outside consultants, companies and whatnot. So it's gotten more professional and backers have gotten more savvy and doubting of what you can pull off. So you have to throw a lot more um, credibility on your pages to show that, yes, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, trust is definitely the uh, the key word this year in 2018. Oh, yeah. So what would be your uh, biggest piece of advice for someone planning on launching a campaign this year? I think it probably ties into just the email thing right there. Like the the biggest thing is attention is scarce. There is infinite number of things on the internet, infinite number of things to do. You check your Facebook 30 times a day, whatever not. And in order to be able to capture someone's attention, you need to 
know their needs. You need to know their language. You need to know their pain points. And you need to have a direct way to talk to them. And from what we found and from the creators I've talked to, there's nothing better than having a list of ready waiting customers for the second that campaign launches. Indeed. All right, Derek, this gets us into our launch round where I'm going to rapid fire a handful of questions at you. You good to go? Cool. Yep. So what inspired you to be an entrepreneur? Not wanting to take orders. <laughs> so if you could meet with any entrepreneur throughout history, who would it be? Mm, that's a tough one. I am going to go, well, I'll probably just go with, uh, at this point, Elon Musk, because the guy is insanely inspirational. And he's also very willing to bend the laws of reality uh, and what people say is and is not possible. And uh, he's surprisingly effective at that. What would be your first question to Elon? <laughs> What's your bank account number? <laughs> How many commas, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's not taking a salary, so I'm sure he's still yeah. got lots of commas, though. I'm sure he's doing okay. Are there any books outside of yours uh, that you would recommend to our listeners? 100%. A book called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. He spent the, his time as a FBI hostage negotiator, and he walks through hostage negotiation but when it comes down to the applicability of these skills, you know, within one week of reading the book, I used it for, uh, I had a fight with girlfriend and it actually came out super awesome. We came out happy. I was having difficulty at the office. It came out, you know, what everyone actually cared about. And again, it resolved itself great. So it's not just like, oh, I'm going to go get in fights and try talking my way out of them. It's life skills for how to deal with people who are in a very emotional state. So were you using the mirroring technique on your girlfriend? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, not even mirroring. The biggest takeaway is the phrase of how am I supposed to do that? So that phrase is worth its weight in gold. Indeed. I think I've read Chris's book like three times now. Just It's, it's always <laughs> inspirational for that moment you need that negotiation skill. <laughs> All right. Last two questions. What's your favorite crowdfunding project outside of the ones you've worked on? Okay. So my favorite one is one my friends made. Okay, there's two of them. They're kind of in the same category. 80s cheesy movies, Dude Bro Party Massacre 3 and Kung Fury. Both of them were over the top 80s movies that just tributed to people who like B movies. And like, that's, I can't resist that. That's too perfect. All right, Derek. Last question. What does the future of crowdfunding look like? Man, it's getting crazy with ICOs and equity after the Jobs Act. I think at the core of it, though, it's going to come down to there's going to be a lot of people burned in these new fields with no regulation and, more importantly, regulators who aren't even quite sure what it is. I think it's just going to come down to trust. Same thing that's happened with non-equity crowdfunding. The better you can focus on trust, the better you can focus on people, the better you can focus on a crowd, that's where the, the money is going to be long term. So are we going to have a cyanide and happiness ICO in the future? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> Sticks and coins, right? That's what we're all <laughs> yeah. about. Well, Derek, this has been a lot of fun. Please give our audience your pitch. Tell them what you're all about, where they should go, and why they need to go buy your book when it comes out. Awesome. So I'm Derek Miller. I'm the uh, Director of Product and Development for Cyanide and Happiness. Y'all probably know us. We do animations, cartoons, comics, merch, tour, and hopefully some new TV shows coming out. As per we've talked about, raise money on crowdfunding, talk to a bunch of crowdfunders. If you're interested in kind of how to crowdfund, it's a way to do your business your way. You can check out my book, Six Figure Crowdfunding. Uh, it's available for pre-sale on Amazon. 
I also have a website, sixfigurecrowdfunding.com, where you can get little brain drippings as they come out of my head. Derek, this has been awesome. Audience, thanks again for tuning in. Make sure to visit artofthekickstart.com for the notes, the transcript, links to everything we talked about today. And of course, thank you to our crowdfunding podcast sponsors, The Gadget Flow and Backer Kit. And of course, if you love this episode, I would love to see your review on iTunes for us. Derek Miller, thank you so much for being on Art of the Kickstart today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Art of the Kickstart the show about building a business, world, and life with crowdfunding. If you've enjoyed today's episode, awesome. Make sure to visit artofthekickstart.com and tell us all about it. There you'll find additional information about past episodes, our Kickstarter guide to crushing it, and of course, if you love this episode a lot, leave us a review at artofthekickstart.com slash iTunes. It helps more inventors, entrepreneurs, and startups find this show and helps us get better guests to help you build a better business. If you need more hands-on crowdfunding strategy advice, please feel free to request a quote on inventuspartners.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you again next week.